0: We're in Genesis 32, and we're reading verses 22 through 32. So Genesis 32, we got Bibles on the side. If you want to grab a Bible, swipe open your phone. So today is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it's, today's story is basically a mirror to your life. And as you look in this mirror, what you're going to find is that you're wrestling with someone. And the one that you are wrestling with is God Himself. And this idea of us wrestling with God is a bit taboo in the church today. Uh, For whatever reason, we're scared to be honest about what our relationship with God looks like. And we present it around to people around us like it's peachy and we've got these rose colored glasses. But the reality is, our relationship with God probably looks a bit more like wrestling. So when I do premarital counseling with people, I asked this question a lot. I said, do you guys fight? And what happens a lot is the couple looks at each other, smiles and looks back at me with a little bit of shame and says, yeah, we do. And I say, good, because if you're not fighting, then that means somebody is getting their way all the time and somebody is not. Now, when when it comes to God, you know, he's right all the time. And so in one sense, you shouldn't be fighting with him. But in another sense, that's just not the way that we work. Like we want to understand why God is doing the things that we do and we don't understand it. There's something about us where we have this propensity to question God, to rebel, and to want to know why in the world he is doing the things that we are doing that don't make any sense to us. And we want to know why we should submit to him because the Bible keeps saying it, obey me, submit to me, and we say, why? In other words, we don't really trust him, and you've got to be honest with yourself about that reality, or else you're not going to deal with what's going on. So God made you, and he knew that you would fight with him. Now, how do I know that? Well, because God literally names his people Israel. Do you know what Israel means? It means wrestles with God. So we have Jacob, this character today. God changes his name to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And then God says, you know what? I'm going to name my whole people this. Basically, It's basically like God isn't inviting us to fight, but he kind of is because he knows that to some degree we need to do it. So out of love, he says, bring it on. But here's what you got to know. If you go to a fight with God, if you go to wrestle with God, you will walk away with a limp but it is better to dance with a limp than to not dance at all. So let me read our verses. Genesis 32, starting at verse 22. It says the same night, this is this is Jacob. He's he's leaving, and he says the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you're asking me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, meaning for I have seen the face of God, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. All right. so Jacob. Jacob is similar to all of us in a very important way for us to know. In that, God has a purpose and a destiny that is very important for you to enter into. But, us, like Jacob, will be distracted from our purpose in life by trying to earn the approval and the love and the acceptance from the people around us. In other words, we get distracted from what God wants us to do because we're so desperate for the approval of others. Like, we need them to approve of us before we could actually go and do what God has called us to be and to do. Now, don't try to tell me that that isn't you. You want the praise of others. You are crying for it like a little baby cries for his mother's milk. And so we're a bunch of adults with like whiny babies just wanting approval from people around us. That's the way that we are. We're just crying in our own little grown-up way. Now, us and Jacob, a bunch of whiny babies needing approval from others. Now, here's the question. What's made Jacob this way? Well we got to understand Jacob's backstory. So Jacob has been selected by God's grace to be the one who will bring God's people back to Eden. So God's people expelled from Eden, then we see Abraham, it's his job to bring people closer back to Eden, and then Isaac, and now it's supposed to get passed off to Jacob. And Jacob has this great calling, but there's only one person in his life that believes in him, it's his mother and everybody else in his life is trying to steal the job from him or doesn't believe that he can do it. They either think he doesn't deserve it, they want it for themselves, and his mom, who does believe in him, basically says, look, we can't really trust God on this, so you're going to have to take it into your own hands, you're going to have to lie, cheat, and steal your way into this birthright, into this calling that God has given you. So, so the backstory story arrives like this. So Jacob is born a twin to his brother Esau. And Esau's just a few minutes older. Now that means, in this culture, that that Esau is supposed to be the one who takes the job of bringing God's people back into Eden. But Jacob's the one who has this calling. But, culturally speaking, it should be Esau. So, Isaac, the father, wanted it to be Esau. Even though God has spoken the words, the older shall serve the younger, Isaac ignored it because Esau was the easy choice. He's, Esau was the man's man, the guy who could get it done. He was a hunter. He was the obvious choice, and he was the leader. He was the kind of guy who could lead God's people back to where they longed to be, and Jacob's just a little mama's boy. So, Isaac made sure that the whole family knew he wanted it to be Esau who would lead the family, who would take the birthright. And he made it so clear that it became very apparent to Jacob that his father loved his little bit older twin brother way more than him. And he felt hated. And so what Jacob does is he begins to spend his whole life trying to prove to his father and everybody else that he is worthy of this calling that God has given him. He's desperate for love. He's desperate for approval. He longs to hear the words, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, but it doesn't come. And then Isaac, the father, gets older, and he's coming near to death. He's gone blind at this point, and he says, all right, it's time for me to get my affairs in order. So he starts making the plan to bless Esau and to pass the birthright onto Esau. So he's starting to do the plan, and then Jacob hears of it, and he devises a way for him to steal the birthright and the blessing right out of the hands of his older brother. And he succeeds at doing it, and you can imagine him as he's, because his father's blind, so his father has no idea. He's speaking to Jacob, and he's thinking it's Esau, and his father starts saying all the words to Jacob that he's longing to hear. You can do this, my son. I love you. I believe in you. I approve of you. And it just does everything, everything he's wanted he's hearing, but then he realizes, ah, he's telling me this, and he's thinking that I'm Esau. And it would just rob him of everything that he was feeling. And, but it works. He gets the birthright, and he gets the blessing. But then Esau figures out what's happened. And Esau's mad, and he's coming after him like a hunter. And he's coming to chase him down, tackle him to the ground, and stick a knife in his belly like he's done to animals before him. So Jacob has to take off running. He flees to go to his uncle's house, uncle, his uncle Laban's house. And he leaves brokenhearted. He leaves a runaway. He leaves as an orphan. He leaves hated and wandering in the wilderness. And he feels empty. And he just longs for someone to love him. And the first person he comes upon is Rachel. And Rachel is, says, it's, says she's beautiful in form and appearance. Basically, she is the desire of all men. And he sees her and he says to himself, Oh my gosh, if I could have Rachel, then that must mean that I am something. And all the world around me would see that I got Rachel when everybody wanted Rachel. And it would, make it, it would be proof to all the world that he is worthy and he's loved and he's approved of and he could take this calling. So he starts wrestling for Rachel's love. But someone is standing in his way. His uncle. And he starts webbing webbing this, weaving this web, this spider web that gets him caught. And he ends up needing to spend 20 years in order to be with Rachel. But along the way, along this 20 years, he's gathered all this livestock and he's become pretty successful. And now has come time for him to leave 20 years later to go and finally actually accomplish the purpose for which God has called him to. To get back to the promised land. So he gets free from his uncle and he sets out. But then he gets word he's about to face his greatest foe. The, the guy who's been, who, who he's been fighting all of his life, his older brother. And he might not make this out alive. But he's got to do something because he's got to get to the promised land. So he gets word that Esau is standing between him and the promised land. And so he's got to have this wrestling match if he's going to live into his destiny. Now, now remember, Jacob knows his brother. He's a man's man. He's strong. He's determined. He is violent. And he's a skilled hunter, and he could take Jacob down like a fly. So he makes this plan. Here's the plan. I mean, Jacob, he's strategic. He's deceptive, and he forms this plan that he's going to divide up all of his family into groups of people with all of the herd and all of the livestock he has, and basically each group is going to give Esau something so that in the end Esau has this grand inheritance that's been given to him, and then at the end alone, Jacob will finally approach Esau and face his foe, hoping that he doesn't kill him. He's, but look, 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 here's, here's what's happening. He is still trying to manipulate his way into being approved of and loved and accepted and he's falling back into all of his old habits. He's been fighting for approval all of his life. And do you know why he's doing it? Do you know why he has to fight for this approval? Because he's craving the approval of man over God and he's not trusting God. Because God has told him, Jacob, you're the one. But he didn't believe it so he had to devise all of these plans of how he was going to do this and all that it did was distract him from doing what god had actually called him to do he's wrestling to prove that he's worth it because jacob represents all of god's people you have to ask not only why is he this way but what has made you this way in other words what's your backstory? Why is it that you so crave this approval and that you won't even go and think about doing what God would have you do until you get the love and the approval and acceptance that you so crave from the people around you? It could very well be that Satan's greatest trick against you is to get you to crave the approval of people so badly that you never end up doing the work of bringing God's kingdom because you're so obsessed with finally hearing from people that they approve of you. in fact, another thing this means is you don't actually know who you are. Because you, like Jacob, I mean, look at what Jacob did. He pretended to be someone else in order to earn the love and acceptance of his father. And we're doing the same thing. We don't even know who we are, and we're presenting ourselves to other people so that we look to them the way that they want us to look. You're the same way. And in fact, you see this often. People don't actually show you who they really are until they've proven themselves to you. On a large scale and a small scale. So you don't actually end up seeing the real you either. So how do you get to the real you? Well, there's something that you must do to find the real you. You have to completely empty yourself of everything that you have. You have to lose yourself to find yourself. And you have to not prove yourself, but lose yourself. Give everything away, and then face your greatest foe. So this is our second point to emptying. As part of the plan to get his brother to not kill him, he has to empty himself of everything that he has. And it's the climax of his life. I mean, he's about to face the greatest obstacle that he has to do what God has called him to do. So he sends everyone ahead of him, all of his wives, his livestock, all of his children. And then, but watch this. They cross... This river called the Jabbok. Do you, know you know what this word means? You don't. I mean, how could you know what it means? It means emptying. How fascinating is that? So he's literally crossing over, emptying himself as he is emptying self, and he ends up being alone before he has to enter the promised land. He has to empty himself of everything before he gets in. His destiny requires him to carry nothing in. There's a place where the rich young ruler, this guy, meets Jesus. And the rich young ruler says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything that you have, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. In other words, come to me empty with nothing. Give it all away. And he can't do it. And, and look at what else. The text is emphasizing that he is all alone he must be stripped of everything all alone with nothing and then face his last test now what's going on here with this emptying well it's it's what you must face actually To know who you truly are, you must be stripped of all that you have and then look in the mirror and see what you find. And this, I mean, this is a beautiful representation of what Christianity is. You either approach God with all the stuff that you've done and saying, God love me, please love me, look at all I've done, or you approach him empty-handed but clinging to Christ and all that he's done, and that is where your approval comes from. But Look, you have been working so hard to acquire all of this stuff in your life and all of this, uh, this image that you want people to see you in this status and this approval and you just want to be loved. And you're trying to clothe yourself with as much stuff as you can before you go into your calling. But God wants it the opposite. God wants you to have nothing to be emptied, and then you are ready for your calling. Because what's happening at that point, you have nothing to cling to but him, and that is all the power that you need. That's everything you need. He's enough. And so you're forced not to rely on yourself, your accomplishments, what you've done, what other people say about you, but who he is and what he says about you. Then you're ready. So this is now Jacob's climactic scene of his life. This is the fighting. So now he's about to face the fight. Now, I want you to imagine this. So the sun sets, and it's dark. Jacob is all alone. He's emptied of everything he has. He's potentially facing death, and he doesn't know what's going to happen next. And so he sits alone, and he starts praying. We saw this in verses earlier. And as this is the first recorded prayer of Jacob. And as he's praying, and he gets up, and he's ready to go, Cross before he gets across the river, this mysterious figure comes out of nowhere, tackles him to the ground, and starts wrestling him. He has no idea who he is and why he's doing it, but it's happening. So they actually wrestle all the way through the night. And as the wrestling continues, Jacob begins to form an idea of who it is that he's actually wrestling with. And by the time the night is almost over, he has realized that he is wrestling with God himself. And we know this because Jacob says it. This is God. I've seen God face to face, and I've been delivered. Now, look at this. When the time came for the great climax of his life, what he ends up, the big reveal is that, Jacob, you have not been wrestling your brother this whole time, but you have been wrestling God. I think that was a hallelujah back there. Look, Jacob's been fighting God all alone. All along, he's been fighting God, and, he, and, and here's what he's been thinking. God, why are you holding out on me? You've given me this promise. I'm supposed to be the one. Why have you not yet delivered on this promise? So he takes things into his own hands, and he relies on trickery and de- deception in order to get the thing that he thinks is his. God's plan to get him to Eden was far wiser and far easier, but it required him to have faith and wait for God. If you think God has called you to do something, but it requires lying, cheating, and stealing to get there, then you are not trusting in God in that moment. So so what does God do? So he's he's fighting God, but he doesn't realize it, so what does God do? He says, Jacob, I'm just going to show you what's actually going on here. And he comes and he wrestles him to the ground. In other words, Jacob, you've been fighting me the whole time, so let me just give you an image of what you've been doing. Now, please notice this. God's presence doesn't cause less conflict, but more. What I want to propose to you is that some of you are fighting with God and you don't even realize it. Some of you are being emptied of your circumstances, so you have nothing left, and then God is going to come and meet you and you're going to see that he's everything. Some of you are starting to fight God in a bad way, like you want to rebel, you know he, I mean, you kind of feel like he's after you, and you're just running as fast as you can to get away from him. He's trying to teach you, like, hey, let's live this way, and you're like, no, I don't want to live that way. I want to be in control of my life. I want to be comfortable. I don't, I'm scared of what you're going to call me into doing, So I'm going to wrestle you as much as I can to get away from that. And some of you are fighting God. Listen to this. You're fighting God in a way that isn't necessarily good, but it's not necessarily bad either. It's just what is required for the stage of your life, your spiritual pilgrimage, where you are at. It's just what is required. Now, what do I mean by that? What I'm saying is you're in a situation where you don't understand what's happening in your life. And to a degree, you still trust God. But you really are desperate to trust him a bit more. And so you go and wrestle it out with God, trying to figure out what's happening in your life, trying to question him so that you can understand what's going on. And you, you are desperate to wrestle with God so that you might better understand what he is doing. So my family has been going through that very thing in the, over the last two and a half years. I, I, I remember the day when we took, took Cruz to the doctor, and the doctor was like, I don't know what's going on, but... He might have a brain tumor, so you got to take him to the ER. So we go to the ER. turns out he doesn't have a brain tumor, but we still are, are unsure exactly what's happening. But throughout all of this time, it feels like a wrestling match. Sometimes I'm wrestling, and I'm trusting God, and I'm just saying, you got to be doing something here. Maybe you're stretching out our muscles, making us more flexible, or making us stronger. Or other times, I'm frustrated with God, and the only way to describe it is I'm just angry. And so I'm trying to pull out my best wrestling moves to try to pin God to the ground so he'll, he'll give me what I want. And sometimes I'm just giving up and I'm just laying on the ground. I'm just like, whatever. And then other times I feel like he's emptying me so that I can discover something new about him. I have no idea what he's doing. But I do know that sometimes I need a good wrestling match and it helps me and reminds me of why I can actually trust him. And then sometimes the wrestling match breaks me, but it breaks me in a way that heals me. So this is the fourth point, the breaking. Jacob wrestles with God, and he's actually doing pretty good. Like, they seem to be equal, but what's happening is God is holding back his power, and then, like, all of a sudden, the heavens open up, and God takes the power, and he touches his hip, and it goes out of joint. And then he lets the power go back and he continues to wrestle with him. But look at what happens to Jacob. He walks with a limp for the rest of his life. You need to understand that if you wrestle with God and you are blessed by him, you will walk away with a limp. But it is better to dance with a limp than to never dance at all. Now, let me explain this. No one ever changes just By hearing the word of God. You have to hear the word of God to be changed, but you have to hear it in such a way where you are humbled, you are desperate, and you are in need. And until you are that, you don't have the ears to hear. We need to be broken to be healed. We have to enter into the abyss, into the loneliness, into the pain, into the heartbreak, and into the death that gives us life. Now, death that gives us life. Okay, Look at Jacob. He's being emptied, but he's not yet fully empty. He was alone with God, but he still had his old life, and God wanted to bring about a new life. So what does he do? He had to break him to remake him. He had to prepare him for his purpose. Now, every single one of us, for whatever reason, it requires pain, heartbreak, despair, struggle, and even then, we don't necessarily go to God. But that all those things will make us or break us, and it all depends on what we do. Do we go to God in the midst of it, or or, or are we or do we not? Jacob held on to God all the more, even after he was broken. Now, uh, Grandma Gloria, she sits up here normally when we're not in a pandemic, but she's not here because we're in a pandemic, and uh, she. She told me something, multiple times actually she's told me this. She told me about a friend of hers that said, when you're in pain, don't pray that God would heal you of that pain because that pain is forcing you to God and it's giving you the blessing of His presence. Now, okay, so she's telling me that because at that time, it was like 12 years ago, I had messed up my back really bad. I was basically stuck on the ground for three months. Every time I stood up, it was tons of pain And basically, Grandma Gloria is telling me, you know what, this is good for you. And don't ask God to heal you. Just, like, enjoy it, because you're enjoying God more now. And it was true. Now, if that sounds crazy to you, then you've never gone to God in the midst of pain. Because there's something about it, when you really go to Him, in the pain, that in it, you are blessed with His presence. And there's just something about that that gives you joy and peace no matter what your circumstances are. Now, a few months ago, we did a sermon called Spiritual Depression, and, and that talks about when you're in pain and you can't find God. That's a whole other thing, but right now, I'm talking about the pain, when you're going to God in pain and you find God. And there's nothing like it. it look, 2 Corinthians twelve twenty says, when we are weak, we are strong. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you're weak you have nowhere else to go but to God and then you begin to tap into his power, his strength, his joy, his peace and then you find all those things flooding into your life because you're not trying to find them in you but it's something that's outside of you. It's like a complete opposite of every self-help book you read. Look within, look within, look within and Christianity is like, look outside of you. It requires to be emptied though. It requires that you rely on God completely. And the result is joy, no matter the circumstance. You discover that if you have nothing, but you have God, you have everything. And you discover finally that he's enough. So you are either a Christian who dances with a limp, or you walk fine, but never dance. And when you go to him, he gives you the strength, the joy, and the peace and in that what you will find is you will begin to prevail in the wrestling this is our fifth point for the prevailing now look at our verses even after god breaks him jacob will not let go in fact don't miss this the only reason that he is holding on is because he's broken what do i mean by that well he's alive he's breathing He should not be able to come into the presence of God and live, yet he is. Though he's broken, he's alive and he says, oh my goodness, the grace of God that he would let me live and being in his presence, I'm going to drink all of this up. I am never going to let go, ever, no matter what. So he holds on to God because he realizes that he is only broken. That is grace, my friends, and that is the test before you. Do you dare to hold on to God even after he has broken you? And do you dare to hold on to God being fully aware that he is holy? See, Jacob has discovered something that in the past he only knew intellectually. He knew of God's steadfast love. He only knew of it, but now he's experiencing it and it's changed him to the core. This is the most important, one of the most important words in the Bible, is the steadfast love. You say, no, that's two words. Well, no, it's one. In Hebrew, it's hesed, and it means steadfast love, but it's a covenantal love. It's a love that is of a promise that he will not break, meaning if God is going to love you and never stop and never let you go, it requires grace and mercy. And and Jacob has discovered that grace and mercy, so he is not letting go. Now, we do know that God is veiled by the darkness. That's why, that's why he's saying, you better let me go, Jacob, before the day comes, because then you're really going to see me, and you're not going to be able to live through that. But Jacob doesn't care. He keeps holding on, and he said, bless me. I'm not letting go on you two Bless me. And basically, he forces the hand of God, he forces the grace of God to say that, God, I'm not letting go, so either I die or you give me grace. This is risky, but it's beautiful, and it's the risk that every single person has to take. He's completely reliant on his grace. In fact, earlier we see him praying and saying, God, I am not worthy of this calling, but yet here he's taking it. So he's not worthy of the thing that he's claiming, because it's all because of the grace of God that he's able to claim it. So he forces God's hand, and God blesses him. Now, what is this blessing? Well, we're coming to the end here, and this is really important. So blessings are words, and our verses don't tell us what the words were. So we don't know what God said to Jacob, but we could, we could take a pretty good guess based off of everything that we know about Jacob. He's telling everything that he longs to hear. Each step in Jacob's life has been a step towards a person. And that step is a step of love me, please. Approve of me. Tell me I'm great. Tell me that I'm wonderful. Tell me that I'm worthy of doing the thing that I feel like is my purpose in life. But now, look at what he's doing. He's standing before God with nothing. No accomplishments, no goods, no riches. He's emptied completely. And finally, with nothing to offer He hears the words that he's been longing to hear. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I love you, Jacob. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And I am here with you always to the end of the age. And I'm not going anywhere. And I'm glad at you. I knew it was you. I knew you were the one that would do this. And it's not that he did it. All that Jacob did is to realize he couldn't do it and reach for grace and that is what enabled him to be the one who would enter in to the promised land and do what God's called him to do. And then immediately his name becomes changed. And his name change signifies a transformation. He is stripped of everything and he's forced to tap into power that's outside of him and that power changes him completely. Gives him a new name, changes the core, and this imagery goes from sunset to sunrise, meaning transformation. Now you can imagine, as he passes this river, and the sun is rising, and you see Jacob walking up, his kids see him, his family sees him, and they see that he's different. And they say, hey, what's up with dad? He seems different. He seems stronger and wiser and more to be kind of feared but also loved and more commanding yet more merciful. And they would say, what happened when he crossed that river, on the other side of that river? And Jacob would say to them, I met a man who knew me to the core and loved me still. He had the power to break me and he did, but that breaking healed me. And I wrestled with him, and he touched my hip and put it out of socket, and I will dance with a limp for the rest of my life. And he had the power of creation in his hands, but yet somehow I was equal to him. But then I saw the heavens opened, and the power of God came down upon him, and he touched my hip, and I got wounded. But then the power went away. He gave it up again, and he wrestled with me until daybreak. Until he would bless me, I held on to him. And his kids would say, no way, Dad. I didn't know you were that brave. And he would say, it didn't feel like bravery. It just felt like I trusted him. Like I knew he would keep every single promise that he made to me. And so I took the risk and I just trusted him. And his kids would say, should we meet him? And he said, oh, yes, you should meet him. But just know that when you meet him, you better be ready to lose everything. But you will gain him. And then for the next few thousand years, the children of Jacob would be looking for that man that Jacob wrestled with. And one day he would come, and he did come, only he did not come to wrestle with man. He came to wrestle with sin and death and Satan himself, and like what was said all the way back in Genesis 3, he came to crush the head of the serpent, to crush the head of sin, to crush the head of death, but that wound or that crushing that he would give to sin and death would bruise his heel, and he would walk with a limp for the rest of his life, and when I say the rest of his life, I mean eternity, so when we enter into paradise, when we enter into eternal life, do you know what we find? We find Jesus the Lamb of God on a throne. Now, he's a lamb, and it's so important that you see that he's a lamb because the lamb was meant to be slaughtered for sin and death in the Old Testament. And what it's saying is that he is this lamb, this Passover lamb. He's the lamb that was slaughtered for sin and death, and he's still a lamb. Which means that he will continue to bear the scars that were given to him by saving us for all of eternity. And I'll keep proving that to you because when the resurrected Jesus in his heavenly body appears on this earth after he has died, he goes to visit Doubting Thomas. And he shows Doubting Thomas exactly what he needs to see. His limp, you could say. He shows them his wounds. He shows Thomas the wounds in his hands and his side, the scars of God. Jesus walks away from the cross with an eternal limp an eternal scar. Is that imperfection? No. It's perfect, steadfast love. All right, I'm praying. God, we do ask that you would show us this steadfast love right now. That in our wrestling, that we would see that you went... For the ultimate fight, you got in the ring with sin and death, and you won by losing. And so, God, we pray that you would show us now that by losing ourselves, we then gain you and then gain the real us. God, we pray that you would remind us that our story is hidden in this grand story of you coming to rescue us. And if we're going to find ourselves, we're only found when we get swept up into the story. Otherwise, we wander the earth wondering who we are. So show us now who we are. Your people who have been rescued, we have wrestled, and we have prevailed because we held on trusting in your grace. We are Israel, God, and we have wrestled with you, and we have prevailed because we have trusted in your grace and your steadfast love. Show us it now, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.